right, well, welcome to BTI Module 2, Session 2. We're going to be covering Joshua today, and before we do, I'll get us started off with a word of prayer. We have a couple of preliminary items, and then we'll get going, so let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning, another beautiful morning. It is a little bit crisp and, and cool outside, but it is beautiful to see the sun rise and see a demonstration of your faithfulness, that you are faithful to your promises, and There's hardly a book that more showcases that and highlights that than the book of Joshua, which we will see today. And Father, we just pray that we would come away from this book believing your word that much more and recognizing that Joshua makes a bold case for the fact that every word of God will take place or has taken place and that it is accurate down to every little detail. And Lord, we strive to know that and understand that from your word so that we may live in full faith before you. And we pray that you would give us minds to understand these things this morning. And uh, we pray that we would worship you because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of uh, preliminary items we have. I have up on the screen here. This is the Steadfast in the Faith website here. So you can see that steadfastinthefaith.org. I know that's really small up there, but uh, pretty self-explanatory. Steadfastinthefaith.org. We're pouring resources into this uh, secondary site, so to speak. It's not the main church website. It's not the gbcob.org. This is a secondary site. Steadfastinthefaith.org, where we're putting podcasts and videos and blogs and other resources. Uh, This is for you, but this is also for the general public as well, and to give them um, resources from this ministry here at our church. And um, again, the best way I can describe it is it's like grace to you, except not nearly as big, right? And not nearly as expansive. Uh, but we are building something like that for our church, and I think it's going to be very helpful. And it's going to become um, kind of a, a a resource center that you can, like when you're on the website, our main website, it'll be easily easy to link out to that. And unless you're looking at your URL, you may not even know that you're going out to another website, uh, which is kind of cool, because it'll almost seem like it's seamless. But this is... Um, this is hopefully, hopefully going to be a good resource for you and helpful for you and for many people down the road. And you can kind of see here some of the resources. Um, Steve has a lot of these videos here. These are like one-minute videos, so little snapshots where he's just answering a difficult question or an interesting maybe cultural question. And he answers those in like one one minute or so, or maybe a minute and a half. Um, and then uh, we have several of his sermons documented here. So the website, I believe has his sermons but they they may only go to a certain point i don't know exactly how that works but eventually this will become kind of the data center for all of his sermons and for a, a lot of our resources here that the website's going to be a little bit more here's the current things here's the last year or something of what we've been doing here at the church but this will kind of be more of like the archive center where you can just access all of this um, here as well so Anyways, just wanted to remind you of that resource there. And uh, I'll go ahead and put up our PowerPoint now. We can get started here in Joshua. No, I don't want to open up Excel. I mean, we could if you guys want to do a whole training in Excel this morning. But I wouldn't know what to do. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump into this. All right, so Joshua is... Oh, yes, please. Are we going to finish the theology? 
Yes, we'll do that next week when we start the next okay. theology one. Thank you for asking that. Yes. Do we need to write yeah. a paper on that as well? Theology of worship? Um, I can't remember if that... Yeah, I don't think so. I think... This module, there, I think there's a couple other papers. I think there's a Christology paper, maybe, this module. Um, and then there might be another one as well. But I don't think there's one on, on theology of worship. So, yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'll, I try to keep the theology sections together and then the Bible sections together. So we'll finish up our theology of worship next time when we cover the next theology session. So, yep, good. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started here in Joshua. And this is a really fun book. Uh, we really see uh, God basically owns his enemies. He just absolutely demolishes them. And it's kind of fun to, to watch. Uh, but we need to kind of walk through some preliminary things related to Joshua. And just to describe what's going on here. Um, for starters, we'll, we'll talk about the title here in a second. But let me just kind of start with this. Um, you have... The, in the order of the canon for the, the Hebrew Bible specifically, not your English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, you have things generally start out in the same order that you're used to. You have Genesis, you have Exodus, and Leviticus, and then Numbers, and then you have Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, and then that, that's basically like section one. There are three sections in the Hebrew Bible. That's how they order it. They actually call it Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And Torah means, you know what Torah means, hopefully by now, but it means the law, right? It's the Torah, uh, teaching specifically. And then you have the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and then you have the Ketuvim, which are the writings, okay? That's how the Hebrew Bible is ordered. This is not necessarily like super important information to know, but it's just kind of interesting how it's structured. So then what happens is, is in the prophets, there's a segment here where it starts with, um, you could almost call it like the former prophets, where you have Joshua. And I know it's kind of weird to think of Joshua as like a prophet, but um, don't think about it like him so much as a prophet, as much as it's conveying historical details that are pertinent for the prophets. All right, so Joshua... Judges, Samuel. This is literally the order of how it goes. And I, for, see, when I say Samuel, first and second Samuel are actually originally one book. So we just call it Samuel in the Hebrew text. And then we have Kings. Same thing with Kings. First and second Kings are essentially one book. Okay, that would be like the former prophets. And then you have the latter prophets. So then this is the next book in the Hebrew Bible is Isaiah. So you're like, wait, where's like Ruth or where's First and Second Chronicles? They're later on in the writings. Okay, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. So you get all the big ones out, right? All the big ones, um, uh, all the big prophets, the, lo- the long ones, and then they have. They're basically almost treated like one book, but they're technically dis- discrete units. The twelve which would be Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, that's the 12. Okay, that's kind of how it's, it's structured. And Joshua really kicks off this 
uh, prophets section here. And so we've, we've covered this section here. We've also covered Job because, again, we're doing it in a different order. But we're going to be covering Joshua. And then Judges will be next in our chronology. And then we're going to cover, I believe that what's after that is we're going to cover the Psalms because a lot of the Psalms were written by David. So we're going to go in that compositional order where we'll do the Psalms. And then we'll do Samuel. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. We do actually do Ruth in here. We actually do cover Ruth because Ruth Ruth would have arguably been written uh, around the time of the judges or after the time of the judges, um, which is interesting as well. Okay, so we'll cover that there. But that gives you at least a little structure from the Hebrew structure of how it works. Okay, now in terms of the name Joshua and the title that's given to it, uh, the nice thing, you know, you've seen a lot of differences in the Torah, like. Um, you know, the, the Hebrew term for Genesis is different than the Greek term for Genesis, which is sometimes different than even the English term, right? It, that, that was true for a lot of the books uh, between Genesis and Deuteronomy. Here, they're going to be exactly the same. So we have the Hebrew title for Joshua is Yehoshua, which is Joshua. Okay, so it's, it's Joshua. And Joshua's name means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And the Greek is just Jesus, which should sound very familiar to Jesus. It's not your gardener, right? But this is, uh, right? Jesus, right? Jesus is also, it's the Greek term for Joshua, which is the same name for Jesus, which is interesting because when you get to, um, like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, you'll see in the Greek text, in the New Testament there, that Joshua's name is mentioned. And it's literally written the same way. So when you're working through, like, uh, if you're learning Greek and you're trying to, to read through Hebrews and you get to, <laughs> and I did this multiple times, in Hebrews 4, 8, I get there and I'm like, okay, so then if Jesus gave them rest, and I'm like, this is interesting. What is it? What's, what's this talking about? And it's actually Joshua, right? Because they're, they're written exactly the same way, Okay. All right, so that's the title for um, the book of Joshua and the naming structure there. Now let's talk about the authorship. I think it's pretty clear who we would understand would be the author of Joshua. It is Joshua, okay? And you can actually see this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 26. I'm going to turn over there. You're welcome to turn over there with me if you want. Joshua 24. Verse 26, we actually see that Joshua had a part to play in writing some things down. Now, I don't think this is an exact proof text to show us that everything that's written in Joshua, I think in theory it could be that everything written in Joshua is what he's writing down here, but it's generally following that structure here. All right, so Joshua chapter 24, verse 26 says, Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there underneath a terebinth tree or some kind of a large tree, which is by the holy place of Yahweh. Okay, so what we have here is a testimony to the fact that Joshua was was actually taking these things and writing them down in uh, a scroll or in a book, in the book of the law. And it was to be associated with and to be treated with... uh, 
alongside of the law, as though it's just as authoritative as the law itself, which gets into the whole issue of the fact that this belongs in the canon and the fact that this is an inspired text as well. So arguably, it could be talking about very much everything that was written in in Joshua itself here, um, and that this is part of that as well. Okay, so that's the authorship. Now, in terms of the who for the audience, we have, in this case, second generation Israel. A lot of them are hearing this, but a lot of them, by the time that this is fully composed, they are passing off the scene. And so this would be the third generation of Israel. That would be the immediate audience. And then it would be the audience that would follow after, uh, uh, the, the, the generations that would follow after. And so that would be the fourth generation, the fifth generation of Israel, so that they would know these things and they would recall these things to mind. And that's important because he's teaching them to stay faithful to Yahweh and to teach them uh, to follow in his commandments and in his uh, ordinances and to give them the way of the Lord so that they may prosper in the land. Remember from Deuteronomy and from the law that there is... Um, there are stipulations that they need to follow, and if they don't follow those, then they are going to experience the curses of Yahweh. But if they follow them, then they will experience the blessings of Yahweh. Okay, So this is the audience and who this book is targeting. Now the when, the when of the book. Approximately, if you're getting into date schemes here, we're talking about 1375 B.C. It could be 1385 B.C., but maybe 1375 B.C. This would, in other words, be toward the end of Joshua's life. And uh, the last few verses, I would argue, was were probably put together by men that followed after Joshua. That's where I would lean at this point. Um, This is not an incidence where, like in Deuteronomy, when Moses actually writes about things uh, after his death. That's not, I think, what's going on here. In this case, I would argue that Joshua uh, had people later on pen those things. Is it possible that Joshua wrote them? Absolutely, totally. But I'm not sure I would would go that far to say that, and I don't think that's necessary in this case. they put together that final piece. And then that once they put those pieces together at the end of the book, then the book of Joshua then comes to completion and um, it is part of uh, the canon of Scripture. Okay, so Now the book's events itself, the events that are actually in the book, span from the death of Moses in 1406 B.C. and then all the way to the death of the elders of Israel in 1375 B.C. Okay. So Joshua dies, and then shortly after that, we have the elders of Israel also die as well. And that's roughly the span. We're looking at about a 35, 36-year period, something like that, um, that the the events of this book span. And it's an exciting book. I don't want to present this book in a very dry way. We have to walk through some of these, these details up front. But this is an incredible book, and you should read it. And it's actually a really funny book, because there's a lot of incredible, ironic things that take place in this book. All right, let's talk about the where, the where of this book. This book, I mean, I'm kind of speculating here because we don't really need to know exactly exactly where Joshua penned this book. And to be fair, he could have penned it over in a variety of different places and put it all together at the end. It, it's hard to know exactly. But at the end of the book, he meets with Israel at Shechem. Okay, Shechem. Uh, 
technically in Hebrew you're supposed to pronounce that as Shechem, but we mispronounce things in Hebrew all the time. So all of these names in the Bible, we're mispronouncing them. And, oh well, that's the way it is. But uh, Shechem is where he meets with them uh, at the end of the book. And arguably, you could say he at least probably compiled the book at that place. Uh, He may have even written all of it at that place. But that's kind of generally where we're kind of getting like a a locality of where this book was uh, put together. And Shechem is interesting because this is actually the location of Jacob's well. Okay, Jacob's well, you may have heard of that. And that's actually the location of where Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And we'll see uh, some pictures here in a moment that will demonstrate more of that. Uh, Israel, at this point, and we're kind of getting a little bit of a context in terms of not just the where geographically, but kind of the where of the setting. Where Where is this taking place? Israel has conquered the extent of the land of Canaan, okay? And I kind of use that terminology specifically because there are still pockets within Israel where they're not fully let's say, driving out all of their enemies, but they have them under their control, if that makes sense, okay? They have everyone under their control. They just haven't driven them all out. But they have conquered the extent of the boundaries of the land of Canaan, at least Canaan proper. Uh, And we'll get more into whether they actually got all the land and, and that whole thing. But they dwell securely. But again, like I was saying, not all the enemies have been removed. Uh, And so we understand that Israel is now in a susceptible place. They're safe, but they're susceptible. And they are susceptible to idolatry. They are susceptible to the cultural religious influences of that day that are surrounding them. This is setting up for a, um, a potential disaster to take place if Israel doesn't do something about it. Uh, and obviously we know that the next book shows what actually happens. It, everything begins to fall apart. The locations of the events of the book themselves are all over the place. They're all over Israel. They're, they're in the south. They're in the, middle, they're in the middle part of Israel. They're in the north. Uh, they're going all over the place. And even the way that they go about this um, is... Uh, and I actually, I wonder if I can even, if you can bear with me for a moment. I'm going to push this backwards here for a second so I can draw here. The land of Israel, as you've probably seen many, um, let's get this. Oh, I'm using the wrong pen, Silas. This guy. There <laughs> we go. Uh, land of Israel, as you may have seen, is kind of like this. And you have the Sea of Galilee up here. Okay. And then it, there's like the Jordan River. And then you have the Sea of, uh, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And... Uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea over here, okay? So, Mediterranean Sea. Okay, and um, the way that Israel does this is they're up here somewhere, yes? And what they're going to do, this is an incredible and a brilliant strategy. It's just difficult to overcome because you've got you got to get all of these armies and all these people to cross this river, which is like, well, you know, it's not that bad. But when you're talking about all these resources and everything, like, you're a sitting duck because people could just come here and just destroy it. But then the Lord miraculously causes the river to part Right? And for them to just easily cross over so it doesn't take very much time, and they're in. Okay? And then what happens is, is they begin to conquer the land by doing this. They cut it in half, which is really important because the strategy is, is to cut off the north from the south. So they can't get to each other anymore. So now you're taking out the middle. And then what they do is they, they take out 
these nations down here first, and then they've le- they've left the north all to fend for themselves, and then they go and attack them that way. Okay, that's the strategy, and that's the order of how the book goes. So if you're paying attention to the geography, it really plays a huge role into you see that the strategy that the Lord um, puts into place for Israel to make it as easy and quick as possible to take the land, and uh, that's pretty cool. Okay, so that's gives you a little bit of how that geography works. All right, now um, now you can see why you have all of these um, these locations: Gilgal, Jericho, Ai, Hatzor, Beit Horan, Shechem. All of these places that they go and they conquer, and that's obviously just a few of them. I mean, there are probably more place names in Joshua than any other book. I'm kind of running that off the top of my head, but probably more than any other book. Uh, in the the Bible, I would imagine, because there are just so many places that are listed uh, that they cover in this book. It's incredible. Okay, so now for some pictures. Okay, so I wanted to get you some photos of Israel here, and this is really cool. So this is actually looking at Jericho. Okay, this is actually Jericho as it sits today. This is really cool, because right there you see this stone part right here. That is what's called a revetment wall, okay? And a revetment wall is basically like a foundation wall that you would place another wall up on top of it, okay? It's kind of like your foundation walls um, that keep everything out. And it it may have even, a lot of it was partially buried, and and, uh, that was to ensure that the city um, stood strong. Um, And the irony is, obviously, that Jericho did not stand strong. Uh, It literally fell apart by itself, you know, quote, unquote, by itself. But this is a picture of a revetment wall. And what they would do is they would put, a, a actually, specifically a mud brick wall up on top of it. And that would be like the city wall um, there on top of that um, revetment wall. And it's very interesting because when uh, archaeologists went there, uh, especially as things began to open up after World War II, and more people were able to investigate the land and they began to ask excavate Jericho, they found as they began to dig around this wall here, and remember there is a lot of history that happened after Jericho. So it's not like it just sits in isolation, right? It's not like it just happens like that. Um, There were other things that were built after those days. But what they found at the bottom of this wall was mud brick wall. And that's really important. Because I want you to turn your Bibles over to Joshua chapter 6. This is the story of the Battle of Jericho, Joshua chapter 6. And we have, in verse 20, maybe someone can read for me. I want to hear someone read it, hear their translation, and it'll be interesting to see this. You can kind of see this in the details of the text, but if someone wants to volunteer to read this. Yeah, Ken, you got it. Thanks. How far am I reading? Uh, Just the verse 20 there. So the people shouted, and priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Great. Now, you hear that terminology there? The wall fell down flat. Yeah? The Hebrew on that... What what translation are you reading from there? NASB. Okay, yeah. Um... Does the LSB decide to differ on that, or did they they go beneath itself? itself. Okay, yeah. See how they went a different way? They took the NASB NASB text, right? 
and they changed it to beneath itself. Because that's actually literally what it says. And that's exactly what they found. Because the wall fell down, and it, 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 it fell down outward, and it actually crumbled beneath this wall. You see that? So the technicality of the text is actually it's very precise. It's exactly what we found today. Okay? That's really interesting. Now, let me give you another shot here of this. This is a, a, a look at, and I'm sorry that because of the lighting here and everything, you'd see this better if we had lights off, but this right here is a mud brick wall. This is a, a wall that probably was built after the time of Joshua and Jericho and that kind of thing. Um, but that's kind of generally what it would have been like, is that there would have been a wall, something like this, that would have been sitting on top of that foundation wall or that revetment wall. And this is what fell down. And it was what they found in pieces under or un- underneath that revetment wall. Okay. That technicality is, uh, in the text is so critical because it shows the veracity of Scripture down to the very details of the text. Okay? This is another picture up close of the, the mud brick wall that perhaps was there, and this is what they had found. They found pieces of mud brick wall underneath that revetment wall there. So um, that's interesting. Okay? Now, um, this, again, gives another shot of that revetment wall there. So you can kind of see how how large and how built up that was for its foundation. And then obviously the wall sitting on top of it would have had a good um, footing, so to speak. Um, Here's a shot of a, this is there today, of a storehouse tower, something like that. And this was probably there during Joshua's day. As they've dated it, it, it was probably there during the siege of Jericho, which is interesting. So you're looking at a tower that the people of Jericho and the people of Israel saw, right? There's a, uh, at least a portion of that. Uh, and uh, see, this is one of those things where you just need to go to Israel to see this stuff. It's really cool, right? This is really, really cool. All right, uh, before I... Oh, yeah, I do want to go to here, actually. So moving from Jericho, give me a couple other shots here. This is an aerial view of the ascent, or you could say the descent, of Beit Horan, Okay. And this is the path that the... Do you remember that story in Joshua 10 where, O sun, stand still, right? Uh, And then you have these hailstones coming down, and literally God is snipering the the people who are (laughs) the enemies of Israel. Like... He's no, no, no Israelite is getting hit by these hailstones. God is like sending hailstones and like taking out people one by one, just with bam, ow, bam, ow, right? Taking them out from heaven above, right? And and you just say like, wow, we didn't. Israel's like, we didn't do that. That was God that did that, right? Um, and this is what they're running. They're running down this hill, all right. And it's a long trek as as the mountains kind of fade away down into the Mediterranean Sea. This is what's going on. So they're just running um, westward and southward, and they're just going down and trying to run away as fast as possible from Israel. Okay, And this gives another shot over here uh, of this, this path as you're going down uh, the, the path or the, the ascent or descent of Beit Koran. And then there's Balaam's donkey right there. So I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah. there you go. So, all right. So that, that, this is really cool. These are real places. You can go and see them today. Uh, these shots were taken, again, I, I purchased this and um, have permission to use these shots from Dr. Todd Bolin at the Master's University. Uh, he has spent 
uh, decades going back and forth to Israel, and, and uh, he's a really good photographer, uh, as well as a Bible scholar. And then you have this. This is Shechem here. This is where Jesus meets with the woman at the well. Somewhere around here. They have, of course, they have a church or some kind of cathedral uh, for every biblical site imaginable. So there is a church right, sitting on top of the well, supposedly. I don't know if they really know if that's exactly where the well was. But it was somewhere in here. Okay, this is Shechem. And what's really cool is that this is Mount Ebal, uh, Ebal or Ebal. Sometimes we call it Ebal. Mount Ebal. And then this is where you're standing, the photographer is standing on Mount Gerizim. Okay, Mount Gerizim and Mount Abal. And those are really important mountains because Deuteronomy commands Israel, I think it's in Deuteronomy 11, that when you come into the land and you take the land, you need to go to Shechem and you need to put half of Israel up on Mount Abal and half of Israel up on Mount Gerizim and you need to read or tell each other the blessings and curses. So Ebal would be the people that would be saying the curses and Gerizim would be telling the blessings and it was to enter into a covenant there. And what's really cool is when you go there, you get up on this mountain and you have half of your cohort get up on this mountain and you can hear each other very clearly. I know it looks like it's really far away. It is far away. But the way that this is set up is that you can actually hear each other on these mountains. Okay? So, see, Joshua is a really cool book because this is real stuff. And uh, real events, real places, and obviously real people tied to these things. All right, now let's talk about the why of this book. Well, this book concludes all of the diagnostic questions. We've talked about these in the past, right? Genesis is the who, and Exodus is the what, and Leviticus is the how, and Numbers is the when, Deuteronomy is the why, and Joshua concludes with the where. Okay, This is the where of God's kingdom plan for Israel. Where is Israel to be a light to the nations? Where are they to be a kingdom of priests? Where is this kingdom of God going to be established? It is going to be in Israel, which is, um, at that point, the land of Canaan. So this book is establishing the where. It's securing the where for God's people. And this concludes it. You've literally used every important diagnostic question in in the first six books to answer... um, who is Israel and what is God's plan? What is it all about? It's really cool how this is structured at the beginning of the Bible. Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests in the land that God has promised to Abraham and to his seed. And this land acts as a geographical beacon to the watching world. That's really important. So that they would come to Israel, to one location, and that they would worship the living God. Um, it's funny because the nations kind of scoffed at the notion that God would, um, I, I don't know, isolate himself, I guess you could say, to one location. Because they would say, oh, yeah, if you're doing that, then your God only has power to conquer one location. That's how the nations used to think about it. But God intentionally went against the grain of the way that the nations thought to show them that um, you don't need to fear them. And the reason why I'm doing this is not because I can't conquer every location. It's because I want you to understand that there is only one God. And by the only, the, one of the best ways to do that is to have you worship me in one place. And so this is why he has them 
have one land, and then he chooses within that land one city from which people will worship him. And ultimately, that ends up being Jerusalem, yes? But this is why he does this. In fact, you can actually see this in Second Kings when Sennacherib and um, the, the king of Assyria and the, those nations, they come to Judah and Hezekiah is there, right? And they're surrounding them. They mock them for the fact that you only have a God who's located himself in one place. And our gods, though, they're all over the place, right? And But they also have many gods, right? And there's this whole competition of gods and that kind of thing. And then God's like, uh, I'm better than you. And then he kills 185,000 of them right, in one night. But um, they do. They really do mock this, but it's actually very strategic. God wants to teach Israel and to help and to teach them to trust him. Trust me. Like, I know I'm locating myself in one location, but it's because I am the living God. And I don't, I'm not... I'm not scared by people like this. I have all authority and all power over them. So if we could put this into one statement, I guess. It's kind of long, but this is what I put together. The the why of this book is to showcase God's faithfulness in giving Israel the land which he swore to their forefathers and to establish his people in the location where he chose to bless the world through his people. Right, You've got to remember that this isn't just for Israel. Setting up Israel has, there's a means to an end. It is really to win over the entire world. That is the whole point. We see that uh, not just in the New Testament. We see that in Isaiah chapter 49. I want you to be a light to the nations. Yes, that's the whole point. You are to be a light to the nations. So I also have a second statement here. <clears throat> also to demonstrate Israel's ineptitude. So God's faithfulness, yes, but also Israel's ineptitude to fully subdue the land of promise. This is also what this book is teaching. And it's driving us to the book of Judges to see this failure uh, that is going to take place because of that. And so it's highlighting their inability to serve Yahweh with all their heart and implying the need for someone greater to subdue the land in their place. Uh, This is important because you actually see this at the very end. You would think, like, at the end of all of this, if this was just Israel, you know, championing themselves, and, you know, Israel really is the one that wrote this book, you know, it wasn't really God, it was just Israel, then you would expect at the end of the book that it would be just full of victory, 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 and then, like, we got the kingdom, and then that's what they just talk about. But it's not. At the end of the book, you get there, and Joshua's like, you need to follow all of the commandments of Yahweh. And they're like, we will follow all the commandments of Yahweh. And then he says, you won't follow all the commandments of Yahweh. And it actually is very clear. He's not just saying like, well, you got to be careful that you don't follow. No, he's like, no, he's prophesying. You will not fulfill all the commandments of Yahweh. And and then they're in trouble. So uh, that demonstrates the fact that um, this is not just a book where just we're just highlighting the victories of Israel here in this book. There is also failure in this book, and there's an honesty about what's going on. So that would be the why of the book. And then finally, the how. Some terminology that occurs throughout this book that's really important. Obviously, the word land. It occurs a lot in this book. I wrote out a lot of the verses there. I made it to chapter 4, and then I stopped because it just... It's just forever, right? It just keeps going and going and going. There's also a word that's really important to cross over, to pass through. It occurs a lot, and uh, I'll explain this in a little bit why this is important, but that word occurs quite frequently. 
We also have the word to take or to seize something. Okay, It's a very common word in Hebrew, but it's an important word in this book, to take something, to seize it, to take it as one, for one's own. And then there's also the word to divide or to apportion, to distribute. And they do that. There's a whole section in the book where they're dividing out uh, the regions of the land to the, the tribes of Israel. And um, it probably to us, may read as the most boring part of the book. You're like, okay, so as you go to this study, uh, this, this city, and then you turn right, and then go to this city, and then turn right again. and then It's like setting up the boundaries, and it's drawing like a, a boundary line. Uh, but it's really important, and I know it's hard, but you, you have to appreciate that there is a strategy going on there, and God being faithful to his promises, even the fulfilling what is being described in Genesis chapter 49. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33, where the, um, uh, he speaks about the, each tribe and the allotments that they would be given is, is referring to the prophecies that were made there. Also the word to serve. And there's that, there's that famous verse that you probably know from Joshua. As for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord or serve Yahweh. This is a really important word as well that it takes place in the book. There's the word take possession or dispossess or to subdue. You could kind of translate it either way. Also the word to inherit, to inherit something that occurs quite frequently and it's important. And even this word send, that's a very common word in English and in Hebrew, right? We use this word a lot. And you wouldn't normally think much about it. But in this book, there does seem to be a play on, um, not play on words, I guess, but there's an interchange going back and forth with this word send. Uh, This king sent his messengers to Joshua or... um, Joshua sent two spies into the land of Canaan. Uh, there's this sending, and the sending word is often a very kingly word. It's describing someone who has authority to send on his behalf uh, for things to take place. And we, we see that that's really important in this book where um, you have big events moving forward because of the sending theme. Okay? So. That uh, that though, that's generally what the, uh, the the terms that I would pick out specifically for this book and and uh, how it's structured. But speaking of structure, we should probably talk a little bit about the literary structure itself and how this this book would be uh, organized in terms of an outline. And this is how I would outline it here. Now I, I know I've put some Hebrew in here, and that's uh, not to distract you or anything, but. Uh, the idea here is it's actually really important how this works. This theme of crossover is a, is a word that occurs predominantly in chapters 1 through 5, or at least partway through 5. And then take, this word take, right, I was talking, talking about the, how this will play a role here. This word take or to seize something will take place from chapter 5 through chapter 12. And then divide from chapter 13 through 21. You see these words occur over and over and over again in these sections. And then the word serve 
from chapter 22 through 24. Now, obviously these words can occur in the other sections too, but they, they play a predominant role, and you can actually show this in the text in these sections specifically. And that's really interesting because it actually gives us a grammatical outline for how Joshua is structuring this book. You have them crossing over. So this, the whole section of chapters 1 through 5 is really the whole point of crossing over into the land and then taking the land and then dividing out the land among the tribes and then the whole emphasis at the end on serving Yahweh in the land. That's how I would structure this book because, well, that seems to be grammatically how it is structured. So I'm not just giving you a thematic outline that kind of makes sense to me. I think that this is how the text is divided. And here's what's really cool is there is a chiasm here, and it's hard to see. But I think that there is actually a chiasm of sorts here, because if you take each of these Hebrew words, avar to cross over, and lakach, and then, which is to take, and divide is kalach, and then serve is avad, notice that this guy almost parallels this guy, right? They look almost the same. It's just the switching of a letter, just one letter. And then this one here, it's just they've moved around. So that this, you got the A's in between, right? But you got the CH in the front and the CH at the end, right? And you got the L in the middle, and then, right? There's a connection here where you've got a chiasm of sorts where it's, um, again, chiasm like uh, birds flying in a V shape pattern, right? It kind of does this and then like this, right? Where the middle is kind of the, the point, that's where the leader. The, the bird that's leading the charge, right? He's in the middle. The middle part, point is the most important point, so it's right in here. Yes, this is right between these points here would be kind of the middle point of this book and this chiasm, and it just serves in a, in a beautiful grammatical chiasm of sorts where you see these themes taking place. Now, I... You know, I, I, I'm hesitant to like say like that's ex- that is 100% exactly what's going on here. But I think that's it's it's hard to not see some kind of almost like coincidence there that this is taking place. So I would I would argue that there is this kind of a structure with this kind of a chiasm. So interesting. Okay, now the slides stop here for now, and we're going to cover a couple other issues before we're done here. But any questions at this point in terms of the background of Joshua that you may have or and we, we'll be covering a couple other things, but is it good? Good. Hopefully you're not like, I have no idea what you've been talking about so far, so I didn't want to say anything, but all right. That's me. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Very good. Um, all right, so I think what I want to address here is, um, obviously we don't always have time to go into every detail. If I had my way, I would love to go through, we just don't have time for this, but actually walk through the book, and we'll just start like talking through each event and each passage, that kind of thing. But that would take a while to get through. Um, so there are a couple of interpretive issues that I do want to address before we finish for today. And the first one is the genocide issue. Mm. Okay, the genocide issue. God wiping out people. And we're not just talking about men, but the women and the children too. This is hard. Hard for us to understand. What, what is God doing with this? Um, and I think we need to set a little bit of context here. So if you can turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15.
I think this is one of the most, this may be the, may be the most or one of the most um, rebuttals that, the, the uh, significant rebuttals that unbelievers have with Christianity and with the Bible. Um, Genesis chapter 15, looking at verse 16. It says, now a fourth generation will return here because, notice what it says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Um, This is in the context of Yahweh speaking with Abraham and making a covenant with him and actually doing so in a very um, pictorial way because he actually has Abraham cut animals in half and then God walks through the pieces and actually Abraham's asleep during that process. And during this, the Lord says to him that uh, your descendants after you will actually go to down to Egypt and will be subjected there for 400 years of time, or approximately 400 years of time. And he says, and, but the fourth generation of Israelites will return here to where you're dwelling right now, Abraham. Why? Because it's not yet time for my judgment to take place. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is that God does not wipe out people haphazardly or in a flippant way or in some kind of arbitrary way. He does so with great patience. And we're talking about hundreds of years of patience. He is not just saying, well, I'm just going to wipe them out right now. No, it's with the consideration of the fact that there has to be hundreds and hundreds of years of sin. And we're talking about some pretty awful sins. Like, kill, like in other words, I know that God is, having the, God is having Israel kill off everybody, including the men, women, and children. But the Amorites and the Canaanites were actually killing their own children. I mean, that's what was, that was going on. Uh, so that's the first thing to consider. Obviously, with the theology of the notion that nobody deserves to actually live. No sinner deserves to live. That's a really important foundation. And I think we understand that one. But that's, that's to start. Another thing that you need to consider in related, related to this is that... And this is where it gets interesting because I think that, especially in Islamic circles, this is kind of like saying, well, this is why we in in, in Islamic state have the... You know, it's just like Christianity. We can go wipe out people whenever we want because it's all about our political agenda, just like it was all about Israel's political agenda. But the issue that's different between the two there is that God actually does this to his own people and to his enemies as well. That's a, that's a difference there. God actually executes his own people in the same way. And we actually see that Israel's history is a demonstration of that. That God is actually putting his own people to death in the same way. Okay, that's really important. And then another thing that legitimizes that this is you know, a, a genocide issue is that there, what the way that Israel entered the land and took the land was clearly an act of God. 
And that's not something that any religious group or any person can just make up. Well, this is, you know, God has told us that this is what we need to do, so we're going to do this. Uh, There needs to actually be demonstrable evidence that this is clearly God and no one else. And there's been no other events in history that have ever showcased this like the book of Joshua and the events that take place there. Because you have event after event where God is actually doing it and Israel's just standing and watching. They're just like, wow, like walking around the city of Jericho and then what happens? The walls fall down by themselves, right? You also have the hailstones, you know, hitting all of Israel's enemies and none of the Israelites are being hit by them. That's a miracle. Like that, you cannot replicate that just as a human being or even as uh, a, a group of human beings getting together trying to replicate something like this. Uh, you, so you have event after event where God is the one that's actually orchestrating the, the actual killing of the people, and it actually sets the precedent for why this is legitimate. And that's why you can't just have people say, well, the Bible says you can commit genocide, so we can go ahead and do that. You can't just say that. It actually has to be demonstrated and clear that God is the one that's doing this, and no one can actually make that up. Okay. So I think the key principle you can pull away from this is that holy war like this should never be conducted unless God is personally the one who's demonstrated demonstrating that he is executing people. He has to be the one that's, that's doing it. And it has to be on his terms. And this really gets into the whole notion of man has no authority to just execute people like this. In no way. This is God and God alone who actually does this and is holding people accountable for their sin. Something that Israel does not have the authority or the right to do by themselves. They have no authority and no right to do that. And so in our answer to someone who who actually believes that jihad or holy war is acceptable, we would just argue, your God needs to prove that. Your God needs to prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the one that's actually making this happen. And it's miraculous. And there's no way they can do that because their God doesn't exist. Okay? All right. Those are some of the things I I would say in regards to the genocide issue here in Joshua. Secondly, there's three of these. Did Israel take the land or all the land? Okay? And this is an interesting thing because you see this occur in the book where... Um, In fact, actually, let's go over there. Let's go to Joshua chapter 21. Let's take a look at this for a second. Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. Okay, this is kind of like a conclusion at the end of everything, at the end of the matter. It's actually the conclusion of the third section of the book before we get into the final section. And so it says in Joshua 21, verse 43, Then Yahweh gave to Israel all the land which he himself swore to give to their fathers, and they possessed it, and they dwelt in it. And so then Yahweh gave them rest on all sides, according to everything which he swore to their fathers. And a man, it literally says a man, uh, no one stood before them from any of their enemies, All of their enemies Yahweh gave into their hand. Not a single word fell or failed from any good word which Yahweh spoke to the house of Israel 
which um, everything, it says everything came about. Everything happened. Okay. Now, what's interesting is like, okay, is that true though? Because what we see is we often see throughout Joshua that there are uh, a lot of indications where it says they didn't actually take all of the land or they didn't actually possess all of it. They didn't drive out all of their enemies. Uh, Like for instance, in chapter 16, verse 10, it says, and they did not dispossess the Canaanite who was dwelling in Gezer. So the Canaanite dwelt in the midst of Ephraim until this day. And so they became as forced labor. Uh, You can also see this, um, in chapter 6, 17, verse 12, it says, And the sons of Manasseh were not able to dispossess or take possession of these cities. So you have these indications throughout Joshua where it's saying, well, they weren't able to dispossess it. But then you have here in chapter 21 that says, And God gave them all the land. And you say, well, how is that possible? Because they didn't really get all of it. How, how does that work? Okay. So that's the, the crux issue that's going on here. And another big issue that we have is that in Genesis 15, we were just there, but God promised to Abraham that the land that he, he, they would receive, that he and his seed would receive, would be from the river Euphrates to the river Egypt. And from what we can tell in Joshua with the locations and everything, that's not really at all what it ends up being. It ends up being a lot smaller than that, at least at this point. And so the question is, is how do we reconcile that as well? Okay. So here's, the, here's what's really important. One, um, God giving the land. This is really important. The terminology is pretty, pretty clear. God giving the land is not the same thing as Israel possessing all the land. God giving all the land is not the same thing as Israel possessing all the land. In fact, you can even see this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. If you have a moment, you can look over there. Joshua 1, verse 3. It says in Joshua 1, 3, Every place with the, which the sole of your foot treads, uh, treads upon it to you, I have what? I have given it, right? It's like, no, wait a minute. Have you really given it yet? Because we haven't even taken over anything yet. See, the issue is, is that God giving Israel the land is not the same thing as them necessarily possessing it. It means that God has now given them full access and all ability and all power to take the land. And that's how we would understand chapter 21, verse 43. God gave to Israel all the land, meaning that he now permitted them to have full ability to take everything that they needed. And that's exactly what God said he would do. I have given you all access. It's like having the all access card, right? You can go anywhere. I have given you all access to all the land and you can take it if you obey me. If you obey me, you'll be able to get all of it, right? They just need to go and do it. They just need to be there and watch God make it happen. The problem is, is that there is disobedience, and we see that 
over and over again in Joshua where there's a little bit of disobedience here and here and it's sprinkled in throughout and they're not able to fully drive out everybody. So yes, did God give them all the land? Yes. And it says, and they possessed it in verse 43. But that doesn't mean that they possessed all the land, that it is specifically referring to just the land. Meaning that they possessed the land that they were able to take. But it doesn't mean that they were able to take or possess all of the land. Okay, So that's, I think, how we would uh, reconcile that. And I think that that's a fairly straightforward understanding once we understand what the once we understand the text is doing there and the terminology is very precise in how it's being used, okay? So those are those two issues. Any quick questions on those? There's the third one I'll talk about here, but is that good? Okay. All right, good. All right, we're trying to cover these huge issues, right, that our scholars have been debating for years, but um, trying to do it in a short period of time. The third one is Rahab's lie, Okay, Rahab's lie. And I've talked about this a little bit, so I don't need to go into great, great detail. Uh, I think I talked about it uh, this last summer when we did the Q&A here in BTI. But um, Rahab's lie. Rahab um, supposedly lies. Okay. And the question is, what's going on here with this? Um, You know, I'm trying to think if I want to do this because I have a video I was going to show you. I'm almost out of time. Hold on. I'll tell you what. Let me let me table this one, and well, because it takes a little bit to get through Rahab's lie, uh, which I don't think is a lie. Actually, I think it's actually an evasive maneuver, which is really interesting. But um, we'll cover that a little bit more. I have already covered that, but we'll, I, I will co- we'll circle back to this. Let me show you this um, here because I always want to walk through the book with you, but I'm not able to really do that always. But I'm just going to have my brother do it for you uh, because. He's not here, but he created a video on Joshua. And I think that this really brings together the book. And I, I wanted to make sure you got to see this before we get to the end. So let me go ahead and, and uh, show you this. This is his WordBoard website, wordboard.org. He hasn't been building into these for a little while because he's been too busy with other things. But um, he has several videos on here, and you're welcome to go and, and visit this. And uh, this is great for all ages. Kids love these, these videos as well as adults. Um, this gives a, a, a quick summary of Joshua. seems like just yesterday that Moses, my mentor, and God's faithful servant, was leading our people through the wilderness. Now he's gone, and God has passed the baton to me to prepare an untrained, ill-equipped, and vastly outnumbered people to invade Canaan. This is Joshua's Law, the story of how God overcame all my fears and all of Israel's inadequacies to divide and conquer Canaan. Joshua's Law, Chapter 1. With our eyes set on the Promised Land, our God, the real captain of our army, briefed me on our operation. It's only by his strength and courage that we will win this war because he promises to fight for us. Joshua's Law, Chapter 2. I sent two agents under cover into Jericho to scout our first target. When they returned, they told me about a civilian named Rahab who... Un- Technical difficulties. <laughs> What's that? Believably, at the risk of her life, decided to hide it. 
Oh, bummer. Okay. He also mentioned that Jericho is afraid. They've heard stories of how our God fights for us and never loses. Joshua's Law, chapters 3 through 5. It is our objective to divide Canaan's forces by cutting through the middle of their land. There's just one problem, though. The Jordan River is blocking our way. But this is no problem for our God. As soon as our priests holding the Ark of the Covenant step into the river, they stop flowing and form a towering wall of water to the north. After we cross over on dry ground, we celebrate it by putting together a stone memorial and then prepare ourselves for the first and most important battle in this world. Joshua's Law, Chapter 6. Today's the day. I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. So you can imagine how stunned I was when the Lord issued to me the most unconventional military tactics I've ever heard of. He gave us orders to parade around the walls of the city once a day for six straight days, and then seven times on the seventh day. But rather than protecting ourselves with shields during the march, he armed just seven of our priests with trumpets. I thought for sure we'd be sitting nuts. I couldn't have been more wrong. With just the sound of our voices and the blowing of our trumpets, the walls of Jericho crumbled before our eyes. Joshua's Law, Chapter 7. Today we suffered our first loss ever to an inferior opponent called I. I couldn't figure out why until I learned that one soldier, Achan, had stolen property from Jericho when we instructed him not to. Achan's sin cost us dearly, and it wasn't until I executed both him and his family that the curse was finally lifted. Lesson learned. Joshua's Law, Chapter 8. Our infantry returned to Ai with a new strategy. Pretending to be overwhelmed like before, the enemy chased us out of their city, leaving it completely exposed. We gladly ambushed the city from behind, burned it to the ground, and finished off all unsuspecting enemy troops. Joshua's Law, Chapters 9 and 10. I can't believe I let a group of Gibeonites trick me into an alliance with them, but wouldn't you know it, God turned a really bad judgment call into a military success. Now that we have divided Canaan in two, and accidentally allied ourselves with the Gibeonites, the southern half of Canaan felt cornered and rallied their armies against Gibeon, forcing us to come to their aid. This battle triggered a series of campaigns across southern Canaan, built with some very strange phenomena. Like giant boulders die following our enemies out of the blue, or the sun standing still, allowing us to hunt down every hostile in broad daylight. Whatever the case, it was clear the battle for the south was won by God and God alone. Joshua's Law, chapters 11 and 12. Now that the southern half was defeated, we turned north to finish the job. And even though their forces had superior weapons technology, we still disarmed and destroyed every soldier on that battlefield. Joshua's Law, chapters 13 through 21. Canaan was ours. So it was time to give us the land among our tribes. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh had already slipped their claim to the area east of Canaan. In the meantime, Caleb, one of the twelve who spied out the land 45 years ago, bravely drove out the Anakim giants out of Hebron, proving that no enemy is too big for God. Then Judah, Ephraim, and the other half of Manasseh, along with Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Naphtali, Issachar, Asher, and Dan, settled in Canaan proper. We then assigned six cities in our new nation to be safe houses for victims, and designated another 48 cities for the Levites. The battle for Canaan was finally over. Joshua's Law, chapters 22-24 God won this war for us, plain and simple. Still, with everything in place, I keep wondering how long it will last. 
We must stay faithful to the Lord to see our nation survive in this land. That was exactly what the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were thinking when they built an altar on their side of the fence. And after some initial confusion, we all agreed we could use a constant reminder to stay the course. But I'm still afraid our people will fail. I don't know if they have the heart to endure. Although I challenge them one last time to stay loyal to the Lord, I know I can't keep my people faithful. They need something else. They need someone else. All right, that is how Joshua is supposed to, it's supposed to make you feel like that at the end, knowing that there is more to come. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll go to the main service. Father, thank you so much for this book and thank you so much that it teaches us not only that you are faithful and that you are victorious, but that also we need you to redeem us and to save us and that there is the need for um, a king who will come and who will do what we could not do and give us a heart that will actually serve you truly from the inside out. Lord, thank you for these things. And may we glorify you this morning in worship and in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.